Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. There are nearly 100 images of the church in the Bible. In this sermon, we will hear of five of those in the form of meditations. You're listening to Biblical Images of the Church by Rev. Peter Yonker. Um, Today's service will have a, a rhythm that we sometimes take on a Sunday night, where instead of one long sermon, I try to do a series of biblically-based meditations all around one subject that is a biblical scriptural subject. And tonight's subject is images of the church. Fifty years ago or so, a man named Paul Menier wrote a book called Images of the Church in the New Testament. And that book is just what the title suggests. He basically went through the whole New Testament and looked at every instance of an image, a metaphor, a simile in which the church was compared to something. And he wrote a little bit about each of those images so that we could better understand who we are as Christ's body. Guess how many images he found in the New Testament of the church? 96. Are you ready for a 96-point sermon? Don't worry, there's only going to be four sections and five images Each of these images, I think, are vital images, important images, images that uh, reflect and elucidate who we are as God's people amongst each other and in the world. And the first one comes from Galatians 6, verse 10, and 1 John 4, verse 19 and 21. Galatians 6, 10, and 1 John 4, verse 19 and 21. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who belong to the family of God. And as an additional place where the image comes up, let's look at 1 John 4, verses 19 through 21. 1 John 4, 19 through 21, where it says this. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or a sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God must also love a brother and a sister. This is the word of the Lord. So the first image of the church that I want to focus on is an image that mainly relates to how we relate to each other within a congregation. How should we look at these people who are sitting beside us in the pew? How should we look at these people we talk with in the narthex and have coffee with when pandemics aren't preventing such things? How should we regard these folks who mill around us every Sunday? And the church is very clear. The New Testament is very clear. We are to look at each other as family. We are brothers and sisters, one of the most prominent New Testament images. The interesting thing is, There are actually only two places in the New Testament, only two places where the church is directly compared to a family. And that one of them is Galatians 6.10, which I read, and the other is in 1 Peter 4. But the metaphor is carried throughout the New Testament by other words like brother, sister, father. So the word father, God is our father of this family, is prominent in the New Testament. It appears in every single New Testament book except one, Third John. Every single book has that word father. 
And of course, in every epistle, who are we to each other? How does Paul, how does John refer to one another? As brothers, as sisters. And in Mark, Jesus says, anyone who follows me, members of the church, are my mother and my brothers. We are the family of God. What does that image mean? How should we think about being brothers and sisters? What, what kind of love is sibling love, brotherly and sisterly love? It's a peculiar kind, right? It's a very no-nonsense, unsentimental kind of love. If you have siblings, you know exactly what I mean. There's nothing mushy about brotherly and sisterly love. I think of my own family. I have three siblings. I'm the oldest. And we genuinely love each other. We have a great time together. When we were young, we would play outside together, do all sorts of crazy things. We would wrestle in the living room. We loved to go camping. We loved to make sandcastles together. We played games together. We did all sorts of things together. There was lots of love. But there was also a lot of um, sharp honesty and fighting with one another, right? That's how it goes with brothers and sisters. There was name-calling. I used to taunt my youngest brother so bad that he would fly at me with fists and try to strike me down, and I would just laugh at him. My second brother, the one right after in the birth order, one time when we were in a grocery store, hit me over the head with a Coke bottle. He was so angry at me, and it broke, and there was blood. My wife... Her dear, beloved brother, when she was in middle school, used to call her squirrel bait relentlessly. This is what brothers and sisters do. This is brotherly and sisterly love. Real affection, but also a kind of honesty and a tendency for the honesty sometimes to lead to conflict. And that's what it means to be brothers and sisters in the church too. Strong love. Strong love that sometimes leads to an honesty that can lead to conflict and combat. But a combat that is never stronger than the true love which binds us, which is not really the force between us, but it's the Father's love. The Father's love for us and for this family through Jesus Christ our Lord is what holds it all together. Who are we to one another? We are brothers and sisters. We're the family of God. Our second image is found in Galatians 6, verses 12 through 16. Here Paul says, those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to be avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of my Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. To, and here's the image, the Israel of God. In his book, um, Manir has images that go in a lot of different directions. So I said the very first image, the family, talks about how we relate to each other as a church. This image, the Israel of God, is about how we relate to our past, to our history. 
It's an image that you see in, in, in several places in Scripture. It comes up in Galatians 6. It also appears in the Gospel of Matthew. It also appears in Hebrews 8. And it's a very important image because one of the most significant issues in theology is what is our relationship to the people of God in the Old Testament? The church is the people of God. The Old Testament Israel was also called the people of God. What is our relationship to that other Israel? How do we fit together? And there are different ways in which the church has answered that question through history. And three main ways, and I'm going to go through each one of them, three main ways which they've understood that we are the Israel of God. And the first two are not the Reformed way. The third one is the way that we understand it. The first way people have understood ourselves as the Israel of God is to see ourselves as the replacement for the Old Testament people of God. Sometimes this is called replacement theology. And in this way of looking at things, uh, Israel was the people of God in the Old Testament. God made promises to them, gave them instructions, but they didn't live up to it. They didn't follow his ways. They fell flat in their face. And so he's uprooted that vine and replaced it with the new people of God. That's us. We are the replacement for Israel. The most extreme form of that replacement theology is found in one of the first people condemned as a heretic by the church, a man named Marcion. And Marcion believed that the whole Old Testament, including the Old Testament people of God, should be thrown out and that the New Testament was the only book that mattered. Now, obviously, we don't agree with him. But you also hear replacement theology just in the way sometimes people talk about the relationship between Israel and the church and the way people talk about the Jews. So, for example, a few years ago, I was on vacation and I went to a Christian Reformed church, heard a good sermon, otherwise great sermon, but somewhere in the sermon, the minister said this, God planted the vine of Israel and that vine failed to bear fruit. So he cut that vine down and planted a new vine, Jesus Christ. Like you can hear, that's replacement theology. And, and we Reformed people think that's, that's not what the Bible teaches. Now, for years, that was a dominant theological position in a lot of Europe, and that had real consequences because it created the perception, the false perception, that Israel was the failed people of God, and take it one step further, people, they were the, they were the failed people of God who killed Christ. They were the Christ killers. And that was the root, that bad replacement theology was the root of a lot of anti-Semitism, now, it's too much to say that replacement theology caused the Holocaust. The Holocaust was a multi-veiled, there's many things going on creating the Holocaust, but it certainly was one of the things that fertilized that brutal movement. So that's the first one, replacement theology. The second way to look at Israel and church and their relation is what I call two-covenant theology. So, there are actually two tracks to God's covenant. There's the track of the church, that's the one we're on, and all the promises that God makes to the church, but there's also the track of Israel. And all those Old Testament promises that God made to Israel, they still stand, and they are for the modern-day Israel. And so, God is constant, right now working along two covenant tracks, and he aims to fulfill them both. This is a view held by a lot of evangelicals today, evangelical megachurches. Not all of them. It's the view of the Left Behind series, okay? That there's these two tracks. 
And in this view, as I said, any prophecy in the Old Testament that is spoken of Israel still applies to the Israel today. So, if the Old Testament says the people of Israel are the special people of God and hold special favor in my eyes, then this covenantal, this perspective sees that that applies to modern-day Israel. Modern-day Israel are the special people of God and are held in special regard. If in the Old Testament it promised that Israel should go from the Jordan River to the Mediterranean Sea and that land belonged to them, people who see this theology say, well, that applies today. Modern-day Israel should have that because of what the Bible says. If God says in the Old Testament, whoever curses you, Israel, I will curse, well, that applies to today. We better be on Israel's side in all things because if you're on the wrong side of Israel, they're God's people and you will be cursed. Now, obviously, this has serious political ramifications. There are a lot of good reasons to be supportive of Israel. I'm not going to get into politics here, mercifully. But as a Reformed Christian, I don't think the Old Testament promises are one of them. There's not a separate tree here. There's not two tracks, which brings us to our view. In the Reformed Church, we say there's only one covenant. And the church does not replace Israel. We are the fulfillment of Israel. We are the full flowering of all those Old Testament promises. When God made those promises to Israel in the Old Testament, every time he was thinking of Israel, he ultimately had the full church in mind. Jesus is not a new tree. He's not a second tree. He is planted on the stump of Jesse. It is one tree. This is the language of Romans 11. Read Romans 11. It's very clear, I think. The tree of Israel had many branches. Some of those branches have fallen off, fallen away, says Paul, but then we are grafted onto the same tree, the same tree. And Paul holds out hope that many of those branches that fell off will be grafted in again and that all Israel will be saved. But it's one tree, one covenant, and we are part of it. We are the Israel of God. What is our relationship to the past? The church did not begin 2,000 years ago at Pentecost. The church began when God called Abraham, who was our father, and said to him, out of you I will make a great nation, and we are part of that nation. Two readings for our third image, one from 1 Peter and one from Ephesians. So I'm actually looking at two separate images in this section. 1 Peter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then Ephesians 2, verses 19 through 21, a different image. Exiles in the first one and now this image. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself as the chief cornerstone, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to becoming a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
So we've looked at an image which teaches us how to relate to each other, family. We've looked at an image which talks about how to relate to our past, the Israel of God. Now here's an image, or two images rather, that teach us as a church how to relate to the outside world, to the pagans out there that we run into. And it's interesting because each of these images, and you probably see this already, sort of there's a tension between them, and they both bring out a different side of the challenge of relating to the outside world. First Peter says, he asks the question, who are we in the outside world? First Peter says, we're exiles. Heard that a lot in the sermon series back in the fall. We are exiles. That means the world out there, what an exile is, The world out there is is a hostile place, and we are like on enemy territory. And our job is to resist being assimilated into this alien territory, into this foreign land where we're being held exile captive. We're like Daniel, right, in Babylon, in exile. Daniel works for the good of the city, but he holds all the Babylonian stuff at arm's length. We're in exile, says 1 Peter. But then Ephesians comes, and Ephesians strikes a different note. You are no longer strangers and aliens. You are citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. You're citizens, not aliens, says Paul. Now, in the passage I read, Paul is talking that about Gentiles are now full citizens in the church of God alongside of the Jews. So to be fair... Paul is talking about Gentiles coming into the church when he says, you are now citizens. But in the context of Ephesians, when you say that you're now citizens of the kingdom, who is the king and what is the status of the king in Ephesians? Ephesians 1, if you know it, is very clear that Jesus is king of this world absolute ruler of absolutely everything. He's ascended above all the principalities and powers and everything's under his feet and he's bringing all things together in Christ. Ephesians 1 is super clear about that. So this is God's world out there and if we're his citizens and when we walk out there, we're not in alien territory, says Ephesians. It's our world. It's God's world. Our world belongs to God. So we're not the aliens out there. It's all the sin. It's all the, 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 the bad stuff out there. They're the invaders. They're the, the ones who are interlopers. And we're trying to kick them out. We're trying to reclaim every square inch. Do you hear the tension? So which of these biblical images do we listen to? Both, of course. They both capture a fundamental tension of what it means to be God's people in the world. The, the, the large truth that our world belongs to God and the also the really important truth that there is evil in this world and we have to be careful of it and hold it at arm's length. Our Christian schools, I think, do a pretty good job of capturing this tension in the way they approach education and they have done historically. When our kids go to Christian schools, Reformed Christian schools, we teach them that our world belongs to God, that every square inch of creation is His, and that all the subjects are His subjects, and all the truth is His truth. That's the, you, you, are, you are citizens. But we also, in the way we structure our schools, recognize the exile image, because our schools take our children at a little bit of an arm's length from the rest of the world, Right? 
They don't fully, we pull them back a little bit because we know that they are young and they are vulnerable and we educate them almost like exiles, a little bit distance away from the world so that they can grow and strengthen before we fully launch them out into the world. Exiles, citizens. We are exiles. Christian leafing through Cosmopolitan magazine or watching most of what's on cable TV should feel this world is not my home. We are citizens. Christians sitting on the shores of Lake Michigan and watching the sun set and seeing God take care of the creation should feel from the bottom of his or her heart this world belongs to God. Our final image is from John 15, a famous image of vine and branches. Listen to these words of our Lord. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you don't remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you may bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. Family, image, how we relate to each other. Israel of God, how we relate to our history. Exiles and foreigners, how we relate to people out there. And now this final image is how we relate to our Heavenly Father, how we relate to our God. Jesus' familiar image helps us to think of how we are related to our Father. He is the vine, Christ is the vine, and we are the branches, and we are to remain in him, and when we do, we bear fruit. It's a lovely image. I think if you are like me, many times when you read that passage, the part that you hear first or that sticks with you is the part that says, if we do not bear fruit, we are like branches that are cut off and wither and are ultimately thrown into the fire. And so sometimes when I hear this passage, and maybe sometimes when you hear this passage, that's the part you focus on. You find yourself coming away from reading it thinking, looking at your branches and saying, am I bearing enough fruit? Am I a fruitful branch? Will Jesus look at me and, and look at what I'm doing and say, yeah, you're doing enough? Or, and it starts, your head starts to think, could I have done more? I think of visits I could have made, cards I could have sent, meals I could have made. Lord, am I fruitful enough or will I be thrown into the fire? That's too bad if that's the way your head goes. It's too bad that's the way my head goes because that's not what Jesus is trying to do here. Jesus is not trying to create existential anxiety. He's trying to push that away. He's speaking to his disciples. It's in the upper room. This is the discourse at the Lord's Supper before he's about to go to the cross. And he's already told his disciples that he will leave them. And so they're panicking, they're stressed out. And they said, Lord, what are we going to do without you? How will we know the way? What will, how will we make ourselves go if you're not right out in front of us plowing the way for us? Jesus' words are an attempt to calm down these anxious disciples. 
And he says, and listen, listen, you guys, whatever else happens, whatever else comes your way, whatever else, whatever confusions or persecutions or troubles come into your life, just remember this one thing. Do this one thing for me and you will be fine. Abide in me. Abide in me in my love. Keep your eyes on me. Abide in me and everything else will take care of itself. Just stick with me and we'll be okay. Now, of course, for the disciples, that didn't mean that they wouldn't have troubles in this world and that they wouldn't face terrible persecution and that they wouldn't face terrible storms. But when they were in that vine, they were able not only to survive the storms, but somehow bear fruit. Our tendency as human beings when we're thinking about ourselves in the vine is to keep looking at our branches and look at the fruit on the branches. And Jesus says, no, no, don't think about your fruitfulness. You know what you need to do? Abide in me. Think about me. Stick with me. Keep your eyes on me. And whatever happens, even if it's terrible, we will make it. We will bear fruit together. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.